Hey there, this is Ellen Weatherford. And this is Christian Weatherford. And this is just the Zoo of Us, the animal review podcast where we take your favorite species of animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Christian and I are not zoological experts. We're just big fans of animals. So uh, we do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're giving you information from only the most trustworthy sources. We think they're cool and cute and pretty neat. I just think they're neat. So yeah, um, if you are a zoological expert, we would really like to hear your feedback. So let us know what you think. We're easily connected with on social media. So get in touch with us. It'll be great. So, ready to jump right in? Let's do this. Okay. So, last week, Christian went first. Oh, and we're sorry about last week. I am not sorry. (laughs) It was rough. (laughs) So, we have to kind of make up for last week. So, this is kind of our apology to you, the listeners. You keep saying our... We really, (laughs) Christian specifically really put you guys through the ringer last week. So um, if you're still here listening to us, thank you so much for your unwavering loyalty for listening to the Botfly episode. Uh And I'm sorry for, I'm sorry you had to go through that. So this week we're making up for it with a really cute episode. We have a pollinator power hour. We are coming at you with a couple of really great pollinators. So last week, Christian went first with a botfly, and this week, I'm going first. I'm taking those reins away from you because you cannot be trusted with them. (laughs) Until next time. Until next time. (laughs) (laughs) This week, I have the greater flying fox, also known as the Malayan flying fox. This is a fruit bat. The scientific name is Terapus vampirus. Now, it has vampirus in the scientific name, but it is not a vampire bat. Weird. And it's a fruit bat. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Who who did this? Linnaeus, I guess, is to blame for this. But so the greater flying fox was requested by our friend Alex at the Pomegranates and Pitchforks podcast. And their podcast is about like horror and paranormal and all that spooky stuff. So um, they they asked if we could do one about bats because they really like bats. So I decided to talk about the flying fox because it's my favorite one. I am getting my information on the greater flying fox from the Singapore Zoo, and almost all of the information that I have this week came from the Luby Bat Conservancy, which is a bat conservation organization and sanctuary in Gainesville, Florida. That's very close to where we live. Very close. That's only a couple of hours away. And they do a lot of bat conservation, and they keep a lot of rescued bats there. So they had a treasure trove of information for me. The greater flying fox, as the name implies, is the largest flying fox. So now when I say flying fox, I'm talking about fruit bats. Mm. These are bats that have like a longer face. They have like a long snout. So they have, that's where the name comes from. They have a fox-like face. I think they look like puppy dogs. Yeah, they're little sky puppers. <laughs> so the greater flying fox is the biggest one. Their wingspan is up to six feet. That's wide. a person. That's a human being from wingtip to wingtip. If you had one on its side and it stretched its wings all the way out, the wings would be wider apart than I am tall. Big boy. Don't want one of those flying at you. Six feet, by the way, is 1.8 meters for our metric listeners who have their act together. 
<laughs> we stand the metric system at just the zoo of us. Sorry, we're from America, but we believe in the metric system. Even though they are so big, they have a six foot wingspan. I should say up to six foot. They're not all six feet wide, but I hope not. an up to six foot wingspan, even though they are that big, they're only <laughs> a max of like five pounds, what? which is 2.27 kilograms. So they're not actually that heavy, which makes sense since they fly, right? right. They need like to be, birds. yeah, they need to be pretty lightweight. So they're, they're only about five pounds. Huh. Still a big guy. Yeah. So you're going to find these bats in Southeast Asia, specifically, as the name would imply, in the Malay Peninsula. And that peninsula includes the countries of Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore. You're also going to find these in the Philippines and Indonesia. Oh. So all in that Southeast Asian area. The greater flying fox belongs to the taxonomic family called Pteropodidae. That starts with a silent P, by the way. Oh, okay. Just okay. like pterodactyl, actually. It's a similar... <laughs> Root. So it comes from the Greek roots of the word taro is a prefix meaning wing, like mm-hmm. the pterodactyl, right? And then pod meaning foot. So it literally translates to wing foot ah. because their wing is attached to their foot. Yeah. To put it in human anatomy terms, it looks like it's going from their hand to their foot. Yeah. 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 So when you look at the wing, you can really see how the structure is analogous to that of like a human hand, same fingers and everything. So this family is also known as megabats. 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 (laughs) How many megabats do you think are in a gigabat? Uh, (laughs) That's a joke. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So these are also known as old world fruit bats. So this is fruit bats, basically, as opposed to the other family of bats called microbats. Oh. So those are the bats that eat things like insects, fish, small animals, things like that. Hmm. So there are about 200 different species of mega bats, which sounds like a lot. 200 species of it. That's a big family, sure, right? Sure, sure. But actually, it's the smaller family of bat species. Oh. So only about 20% of bat species are mega bats. There are 1,200 species of micro bats. Well. <laughs> Yeah, really, they're the minority are there, here. Are there regular bats? Just medium bats. <laughs> Base well, bat. <laughs> you're, yeah, that's your starter kit bat. <laughs> your mild bat. So is that a no? No. Oh. It's just the mega bats and the micro bats. So micro bats, as the name would imply, are little, and then the mega bats are the big boys. The Malayan flying fox is one of those mega bats. I just thought that was a very dramatic name. Yeah. I think that's cool. Adds a little flair to it. So I'm going to jump into our ratings for the Greater Flying Fox. First up is effectiveness. So here at Just the Zoo of Us, we define the category of effectiveness as physical adaptations that make this animal better at doing the things it's trying to do. For the greater flying fox, I gave them an effectiveness of 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. So fruit bats are, as the name implies, frugivores. This means that they eat fruit. Huh. Almost exclusively, they eat fruit and nectar. So in captivity, they've been documented to eat things like insects and stuff, but it's not really ideal. Sure. It's not really what they prefer to go for. So when you're thinking of a bat... How are you thinking of it navigating its surroundings? Usually flying, right? Correct, yes. But I guess I meant more perceptively. 
how it's oh, perceiving I see, I its see. surroundings. I see. So yeah, kind of the the stereotype is echolocation, right? Right. Blind, like low vision. Yeah. Yeah. So that's micro bats. Oh. This is mega bats. It's different. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they use mecho location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually climb in their uh, Gundam mech, <laughs> and then they hunt uh, fruit with their robot exoskeletons. I think we've made a pretty interesting anime here. I would be surprised if there wasn't already a fruit bat mech anime. There's a mech anime for literally everything. So. I know what I'm doing after this. <laughs> <laughs> so this makes sense because when you're thinking of the little the little microbats that are predators, mm-hmm. they use echolocation to hunt at night. They're hunting moving prey. Sure. Now, uh, fruit bats don't use echolocation. They actually have pretty good sense of vision. They have good vision. They have a really good sense of smell because they're not hunting prey, right? They're just flying around and looking for fruit and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they are nocturnal. So they have these huge eyes, these big round eyes, and they're very, very sensitive. So their eyes are big enough to help them see very well, even in very low light. And their eyesight is about on par with a house cat's. Wow. Yeah. It's about as good as a cat's. And they actually have the parts of the eyes that they need to see in color. So they see totally in color, which makes sense because they're looking for fruit. So sure. they need to sure. they need to be able to identify the fruit that they're looking for. So they actually navigate with vision and smell rather than using echolocation. Yeah. And now I think about it, I don't think echolocation would help them find fruit I mean, no. when it's hanging on another plant. <laughs> it might help them like determine that it's there, but it wouldn't give them any other information. Like they, they need to be able to have eyes on what they're looking for. Echolocation makes sense in midair, right? Because just seeing something in the air, right, in, in a particular spot is enough. Whereas a piece of fruit is going to be surrounded by all sorts of other things. Yeah, it's not going to do a lot for you. So mm. I have to imagine that like echolocation was developed by the micro bats for their purposes yeah, that yeah. do not apply to the fruit bats. Yeah. So they they don't do that, but they have better, more refined senses to make up for that. Now, on their toes, all five of their toes are facing the same direction. So all five of their little toes are like lined up in a row. So it looks kind of like a back scratcher. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How all the, the little toes are lined up. They have a really, really strong grip for those toes, and it's strong enough that they can hold onto a branch with just one foot. Oh. So with one foot, they can wrap all their toes around the branch and hold on. And then with their other foot, they can do things like feed themselves or groom each other, or do what they need to do. Yeah. So they have pretty good dexterity with their feet since, you know, they can't do anything with their hands that are, they do have a thumb on their wing, like at the end, at the, not, it's not at the end, but it's kind of like at the top of the wing. They have like, a thumb. Yeah. It's kind of like three quarters of the way down the wing or something like that. Yeah. So the thumb sticks out and it's kind of hook shaped sure. so they can use that for other things too. And they can bring that like close to them so they can use that to some degree as like a tool sort sure. of like they can use it like we would use our hands, just not as good. So I did give them an 8 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. I only took a couple points off when you compare their mobility since they are flying mammals. Bats are the only mammal that can fly. This kind of forces the comparison between them and birds. Right. Because they're flying for better mobility, whereas birds 
kind of that's kind of their whole thing that they do is flying. I guess prior to this moment, I hadn't made that realization that they're on, they're the only flying mammals. Right. So there's other mammals that will glide. That's true. But that's true. the bat can actually like get some lift from its wings. Right. It's not just it's not just like soaring, like gliding through the air. Like flying squirrels or sure. gliders. Sure. Yeah. But the the bat can actually get some lift. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not as versatile at flying as birds. So think about how the bat's wing is attached to its feet. Right. That kind of means it can't do anything else with its feet while it's <laughs> flying, right? Yeah. So a bird can. A bird can fly while its feet are still free to do whatever. They can like carry things around yeah. and um you know bats can carry small things, but it's just, they're not as good at well, it. Plus, plus birds have their tail to work as like a rudder of sorts, right? Yeah. So yeah. the bat is better built for flying than other mammals. But not as good as flying. They can. (laughs) (laughs) In in that it's possible, but not as good as birds. And they also can't really take off like a bird can. A bird can just kind of get a running start and just take right off. But a bat can't really do that. Most bats have to actually drop down from a hanging position. Mm -hmm. And they have to like fall for a few feet and then let the air kind of let their wings catch the air and then they can fly. So that implies a. A minimum of some distance between them and the ground to do that. Right. They have to be like in a tree or something or like roosting and they have to drop down so that they can fly. They can't just take off from the ground. Sure. There are apparently a couple of species of micro bats that can take off from the ground, but this type of bat cannot. Hmm. Also, because their wings and their feet are attached, they can't do squat on the ground cannot do a single thing on the ground they uh, are just useless they can't they can barely crawl now i took some points off from the tamandua for having just awful mobility on the ground right but the bat doesn't actually need to go on the ground for anything because it doesn't have to come down for like water or anything like that it, it really just kind of lives its whole life up in the trees and hanging from stuff so i didn't feel like it was fair to deduct points for its ground mobility because it just doesn't hang out on the ground for sure. any reason sure also, they do have that thumb, that hooked thumb, and it makes them really good at climbing because mm-hmm. they can grab onto trees and branches, and they're really good at climbing. And when you think about it, like climbing around and crawling through branches and stuff takes a lot less energy than flying. Right. So right. they really probably spend most of their time climbing and crawling around rather than flying. Yeah. You yeah. remember we saw that giant bat at, um, I think it was like one of these types of, I, I know it was definitely a flying fox of some type. I don't know if it was this particular species, but at Animal Kingdom, I we do. saw that bat climbing around. Yep. I mean, that thing was climbing all the way. It was on this giant rope that was hanging across this exhibit, was climbing all the way across and all the way back, was just having a wonderful time. It was a little spooky, <laughs> to see it move, you remember? It moved in a kind of a little bit of a spooky way. I think it's the material their wings are made of that yeah. kind of contributes to that. Yeah. Looks cape-like. Yeah. It's like almost stretchy. It is stretchy. Yeah. It looks kind of rubbery almost. But so, yeah, we, we saw him climbing around and they're really good at it. They're quick. They're good. They can, they can get some distance. So that's the 8 out of 10. Not fully a 10 out of 10, but still pretty good. Yeah. I mean, they're the only mammal that can fly, so... For now. They're clearly the only ones doing that. For now? <laughs> well, okay. I mean, if you, if you don't count humans <laughs> with airplanes, I guess. One of these days. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to take that into consideration, we're way better at flying. We can totally multitask. We can fly while 
playing Sudoku and <laughs> can't hit geese though. We can do our taxes. Can't what? Can't hit geese though. <laughs> that one time. Rip. <laughs> All right. So that's the eight out of ten for effectiveness. I'm gonna move on to ingenuity. Okay. Which we define as the behavioral adaptations that an animal has that give it an edge over other animals. So clever problem solving and tool use and things like that. I gave the greater flying fox also an 8 out of 10 for ingenuity. Okay. This is a clever bat. (laughs) They're pretty good, actually. They're pretty smart. So they live in colonies with family groups that all forage together. And these family groups all have pretty complex social hierarchies that determine things like which bats get access to the better food resources or the better roosting spots. Hmm. They kind of squabble between each other and like kind of duke it out over like which one gets like the juiciest fruit or (laughs) something like that like they they do kind of have a hierarchy between them and they also in captivity at least they don't mind cohabitating with other bat species okay they'll like chum up with other bats they don't mind each other so in the wild they will they will prefer different fruits depending on the season so this makes them what's called sequential specialists Hmm. where they'll feed heavily on a couple of specific species of plant and then they'll shift focus to another type of plant after like a few weeks or a few months so they'll migrate between the areas where you find those plants to keep up with the blooming cycle of different plants So rather than saying like, oh, they only eat, I don't know, mangoes all the time. It's like they'll eat mangoes for like a couple months and then maybe they'll move on to papayas and then they'll move on to some other thing. So it's not like they just have one thing that they eat. They vary up their diet a lot. Yeah, this was this was kind of the case with the panda as well, right? Because it was the case that they are not able to feed off one kind of bamboo because there's no one bamboo that's around year round. Right. Right. Yeah, this is like that. And they will travel from place to place and over pretty big distances to keep up with their food supply. Not too much is known about what they're up to in the wild since they are nocturnal. So Mm -hmm. they're active at night. And also they do migrate a lot and they cover pretty vast distances. So it's kind of hard to have like continuous eyes on them and see what they're doing out there. So... A lot of this information that I have for their ingenuity comes from an article that I was given by the Luby Bat Conservancy. The article is called Fruit Bat Enrichment at the Luby Foundation by Dana LeBlanc. So in captivity, specifically at the Luby Bat Conservancy, the enrichment for the bats often comes in the form of providing food in complex foraging devices oh. that require the bat to figure out how to get the food instead of the food just being freely offered. So enrichment is really important in any captive environment for any animal because it requires them to continue thinking. It requires them to keep their mental activity going, keep their brain sharp, and also just kind of, you know, keep them happy. And it's it's just a better way to provide a good environment for them. So what they do at the Luby Bat Conservancy for their bats there, this is specifically the Malayan flying foxes. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones that they have successfully figured out are a weighted chain that is loaded with fruit that the bat has to pull up to get the food. So they actually have to pull the chain up to pull the food closer to them so that they can get it. Hmm. That's just one. Another one that was kind of complicated for me to try to figure out how it worked was it's something called a grenade feeder. So it's not what it sounds like. (laughs) 
I'll just get that right out of the way. It Fruit doesn't everywhere. it doesn't blow up and scatter <laughs> fruit shrapnel all over yeah. the enclosure. This is a PVC pipe with holes drilled in it, surrounded by a wire mesh, and each hole has a pin through the pipe. Uh-huh. One of the pins holds a ring with fruit on it. Yeah. The bat has to pull the correct pin out of the pipe to make the fruit ring fall out. Yep. I've I've seen a very similar puzzle in an escape room. <laughs> <laughs> Although instead of fruit, it was a key. So let's see which one of you was better at figuring this out, you or the fruit bat? <laughs> how long did it take you to figure it out? Well, the whole thing was like an hour, but I don't remember how much that particular piece took. I think the fruit bat may have been better at figuring this puzzle out than you. Well, geez. I give you a 7.5 out of 10. <laughs> So that's another one. That's the grenade feeder. And then the other one that I thought was interesting was a PVC puzzle feeder that would only dispense juice when lifted at a particular angle. Hmm. So you had to hold it at a certain angle so that these two holes in it would line up that would allow juice to flow through it. So you had to hold it at a particular angle to get the juice to come out. And the bats were pretty quick at figuring that one out. They were <laughs> able to manipulate the PVC pipe to the correct angle and hold it there long enough to get all of the juice out of the feeder. I'm having a fun time imagining these bats drinking like grape juice or something with their <laughs> big dog faces. It's and just really like, cute. Lum, 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 lum. <laughs> it's really cute. I love it. Another point that I gave them for ingenuity was the fact that they turn right side up to go to the bathroom so that they don't poop on themselves. <laughs> it's pretty smart. Yeah, I had to give them a, a plus for that because I did not like that about the shoe bill that they had no qualms about pooping all over themselves. Fruit bat at least has that figured out. It kind of looks like they're doing a pull up, doesn't it? Like when they, they like kind of reach up with their thumbs or whatever and pull themselves right side up. Yeah, they they'll right themselves and then just poop on the ground and then they go back to hanging yep. out like they like to do. So that's my 8 out of 10 for ingenuity for the stuff. Malayan flying fox. Now, aesthetics, easy. 10, perfect score. All right. This is a fluffy puppy that has its very own built-in blanket. Oh. It has a blanket and when they wrap themselves up in it, boy, it's just so cute. Oh. It's so sweet. And since they are nocturnal, they have those really big round eyes, and it looks like a big cartoon eye. It's just so sweet. It's adorable. <laughs> and they're so fluffy. They're just, everything about them is delightful. I love them. The imagery you evoked there made me think of uh, that ch- that children's book about the bat. Stella Luna. That's it. Stella Luna was my favorite book when I was a little kid. It is a children's book about a bat that let me see if i can remember the story the bat falls out of her nest and she oh, or she uh, the, spoiler alerts by the way uh, yeah spoiler <laughs> alerts for stella luna <laughs> stella luna gets separated from her mom in some way and ends up in like a bird's nest yeah, and she's yeah. raised by birds but she thinks she's just like a really terrible bird because she doesn't like to eat like the bugs and stuff mm-hmm. that the other birds eat because she's a fruit bat so she doesn't like to eat the bugs but she eats them anyway because that's all she knows and she thinks she's just a really really bad bird but then she grows up enough where she learns how to fly 
and she flies over. Oh, and since they're birds, they're awake during the day and she's so tired and sleepy because she's supposed to be nocturnal. And then at one point she finds other bats and like makes her way back to her bat family. And she's like, oh, I'm not actually terrible. I'm just a bat. (laughs) Was that book about self-acceptance? I think it was about a lot of things. I think it was about, yeah, like, I don't know, finding your tribe and thriving in your own environment and like i I feel like it's an ugly duckling story right like like oh i'm not actually i'm not terrible i was just meant for something else like it's a just such a good story and when i was a little kid i also had a stuffed stella luna Mm. that had these little velcro wings that you would wrap up so you could wrap her up with her little wings it was really cute maybe that's why i like fruit bats so much because i have a strong positive association with fruit bats because i had a little stuffed one when i was a little kid my mom's listening to this right now i bet i hope mother please (laughs) but my mom's probably listening to this right now and laughing about the time that um when i was a little kid i one time had that stuffed stella luna and i held her out the window of our moving car because she wanted to fly and then i dropped her (laughs) and my mom had to pull over in the traffic because i was devastated and in hysterics crying and my mom had to pull over and stop the car and get out and walk over to where i dropped her and pick her up and give her back (laughs) (laughs) but still luna made it home so that's my personal fruit bat story very good (laughs) about my darling stella luna just to Recap, that was an 8 out of 10 for both effectiveness and ingenuity and a 10 out of 10 for aesthetics. So I will finish strong with some miscellaneous information about the Malayan flying fox. Their conservation status is near threatened. So their populations are on the decline Mm -hmm. for a few different reasons. First of all, being deforestation, which is threatening their natural habitat. Second of all, they're hunted for bushmeat. Which I was surprised by because it's a bat. You don't normally think of them being eaten. But when you think about how big they are, it's a big guy. Probably very muscular, too. They're probably pretty lean and strong. But they're only, you said they're only like five pounds, right? Yeah. So I don't know. It's not the choice I would make. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I guess people hunt them for bushmeat because they're pretty chunky boy as far as bats go. And lastly, flying foxes are sometimes killed by farmers because they're seen as pests that eat fruit from orchards. Oh. So farmers that are trying to, you know, harvest mangoes or something like that will kill bats because bats will come in and eat their fruit. So those are the sort of major threats to flying fox populations. Now, that being said, flying foxes are actually super important to their local ecosystem because they act as significant pollinators. Flying foxes eat fruit and then they spread those seeds over the vast distances that they travel because Mm -hmm. they do go from place to place. They're not just staying in one small territory their whole life. They're branching out and they're going to different areas of the forest. So this stimulates biodiversity and strengthens the gene pool for those plants by spreading those seeds over a really wide area. Awesome. Their fur because they are so fuzzy, their fur also picks up pollen so that when they fly around through the forest and visit different trees, they spread that pollen around wherever they go. That's cool. Yeah, so they're like both actively and passively 
spreading life and pollen and rejuvenation everywhere they go. So bats get a bad reputation. I think there's a heavy association between bats and, you know, vampire bats. A lot of people assume that all bats are vampire bats or assume that like all bats will like give you rabies or all bats will bite you or something like that, which I think is kind of an outdated thing. I feel like people, younger people, people in my generation are starting to break that stigma down and love bats and appreciate bats for what they are. So definitely, which maybe uh, Stella Luna had something to do with that. <laughs> I'm now thinking of also Fern Gully. Oh, yeah. Uh, the bat from Fern Gully. Was that a fruit bat? I don't remember. There's the one voiced by Robin Williams, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll have to look back and see if that was a fruit bat or not. It was a rapping bat, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> he sure was, wasn't he? <laughs> And then uh, the other bat that I'm thinking of that I know was not a fruit bat was the little bat Bartok from Anastasia, but I'm almost 100% sure that was not a fruit bat. I think that was like a vampire bat or something. Maybe. It was a little, had a little little snub nose. Yeah, yeah. Not a very cute little dude, huh? I had a stuffed one of him too. I had a lot of stuffed animals. But yeah, so that's my... That's my bit on the Malayan flying fox. So big, big, big thank you to the Luby Bat Conservancy for all of your help for that episode. Yeah, big thanks. Yes. All right, Christian, what you got for us this week? Well, all right. So as you mentioned earlier, this is our episode on the pollinator power players. Okay. <laughs> I think you said something else. I said power hour, but you got you got even more alliteration out of that than I did. <laughs> I did so it. I think you even improved on the original. For once. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I have the Western honeybee. Yay. Buzz buzz. Buzz buzz. <laughs> Scientific name, Apis mellifera. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. I think you got it. <laughs> This was submitted to us by our friend Julie Gilson. Thanks, Julie. Thank you so much, Julie. We chose this animal for this week's episode because the National Honeybee Day is coming up on August 17th. Excellent. And if I'm guessing correctly, you should be listening to this episode maybe a few days before then. Which gives you time to prepare. You can put together your honeybee costume if if you don't have one already, which I'm assuming you do. Yeah, you got to get your costume put together. You have to put out the... um, the honeybee hive out in the corner of your living room, leaving out some flowers. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the night, a swarm of bees will fly down your <laughs> chimney. And if they judge you to be pure of heart, <laughs> they will leave you honey. Else, well, let's not talk about what else. <laughs> they actually, what they'll do is they will swarm into your bedroom and abduct you in the middle of the night and bring you back to their hive and feed you to their queen. Wait a minute. You were fooled. These aren't bees at all. These are bot flies. Christian has been removed from this podcast. <laughs> all right. Uh, my information for this animal comes from the University of Florida's Entomology and Nematology Department, found at entnemdept.ufl.edu. Coming through, two for two, yeah, back pretty, to back. Pretty good on these bugs. Yeah, this is round two. This is shot at redemption. Let's go. <laughs> and also getting information from, information from nationalgeographic.com. So the Western honeybee, I think many of us are familiar with it. Their adult size is between 0.4 and 0.6 inches, or 1 to 1.5 centimeters long. Uh, As far as where they're found, they are naturally occurring in Europe, 
the Middle East and Africa, but they can be found pretty much all over the world other than Antarctica, basically, um, because they've been purposely moved to all parts of the world for the use as pollinators, basically. What is a, an invasive species that's like a positive thing? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a good invasive species. Yeah. I'm assuming. I don't know what you're about to tell me about what they do, so I'm assuming it's good. It is good. Okay, it is good. good. I was trying to think maybe it's based on desire, but I'm sure people have tried migrating things on purpose and it turned out negatively. Oh, uh, the pragmatis sure. is where that happened because they brought them in for pest control and then they became the pest. <laughs> you either die pest control or live long enough to become the pest. <laughs> There's, there's your Batman crossover. Thank you. <laughs> Flying fox, fruit bat, Batman. Yeah. We made it all the way around. <laughs> we made it full circle. So yeah, they can found they can be found pretty much all over. Their taxonomic family is Apidae. Other evolutionary relatives include other bees, like bumblebees and stingless bees. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Effectiveness is the first category, and I give the honeybee a big old 9 out of 10 for that's, effectiveness. That's real good. They're very, very good. So first of all, I count their widespread, how they're found widespread to be a, a big plus there. That must mean they're pretty hardy. Yeah, yeah. I'm counting pollination. As yeah. an effectiveness, mm-hmm. um, because it counts as something that they have, they, they have an interest in being pollinators themselves, right? Because being pollinators, they continue the plants that they depend on themselves. Right. right. They're self-sustaining. Right. So uh, before we go too further with these, we should talk about there are three different classes, I should say, of bees, of, okay. these, of these bees. So there's, of course, the queen there are workers and there are drones. So the ones that most of us think of are actually the workers. And these are female bees. Oh, females are the workers. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So these are female bees and they are specialized in collecting pollen and nectar. Okay. Yes. Um, so they have the, the little sacks on their legs and the hair on their bodies and it, and it collects uh, pollen as they go from flower to flower. Sure. Trying to get nectar. So they're the ones that you're going to see flying around. Yes. Okay. Landing on flowers yes. and stuff. Now, these are also the ones with the stingers. Okay. <laughs> Don't touch. Well, so let me let me rephrase that. The queen and the workers all have stingers, except with the workers, uh, their stingers have pronounced barbs on them. Oh. So what happens when they sting something with elastic or tough skin like a human? The barbs make it so that when the bee pulls away from the sting, its whole uh, venom sac gets pulled out with it. Hey, that's not ideal. Yes. So (laughs) this kills the bee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. So that's the point I'm taking off for effectiveness. Yeah, that's a kamikaze move right there. (laughs) Whereas with the queen bee, she also has a stinger, but the barbs aren't as pronounced. So it's less likely that all of her junk gets ripped out of her body when she's done (laughs) (laughs) the thing what that tells me is that clearly evolutionarily they have the idea of being able to sting without immediately dying but they just don't (laughs) sure i mean it it's not something they can control either right because if a bee stings us leaving its poison sack or whatever behind is not going to help them any uh, we're, yeah. we're still going to be kicking. Yeah, we're fine. But, you know, on a smaller predator like another insect, that could be the difference between a kill or not, right? But you still die, though. Yeah, yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's a death for death type thing. 
Right. It makes more sense for those kinds of predators. Your KDR is forever one. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. And then, of course, their honey production. Uh, So they produce honey for their own purposes. It's kind of referred to as resource hoarding. Oh. They're naturally from temperate climates. And the idea is that they create and store honey during the seasons in which it's easy to get the nectar from plants. And they will store it for the colder months to when they wouldn't be able to collect as much or, or if any. Okay, that makes sense. Right. right. So yeah, 9 out of 10 effectiveness. It's pretty good. It's a good B. It is. Other than the fact that their only method of self-defense mm-hmm. e- effectively kills them. Yeah. Making basically. it not self-defense at all. Oh, and I didn't mention this, but the drones that I mentioned, those are the male bees. Okay. What the, do they do? Their only purpose is mating. That's it. What? That's it. What? <laughs> <laughs> This is a harem. <laughs> a um, harem of drones. Because they, they don't have the specialized tools to go collect uh, resources. They're a little bigger. So one thought is something they might do while in the hive is uh, temperature control. Like uh, using their wings. Just like a... Oh, like the vibration of their wings. Or moving air around, that kind of thing. Okay. I mean, I guess. So they do not have stingers and that is because the the stingers that the other bees have are uh, modified proboscises okay <laughs> if that's how it's that's a difficult plural but <laughs> sure um which i believe in the male is their mating tool okay <laughs> a, an organ yes okay <laughs> so i guess that makes sense that for them it's used for reproduction and the other bees it's used for defense what about um taking care of the beebs do they take care of the beebs so I believe those come down to other uh, workers, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. So the workers are doing literally everything. Yep. And the drones are just kind of there. Yeah. House husbands. <laughs> the trophy husbands, I guess. <laughs> wow. Bees have it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Moving on. Ingenuity. I'm giving a full 10 out of 10 for ingenuity. Really? Yes. It's a clever bee. So first of all, their ability to communicate with each other is fairly impressive. Uh, They do this through a combination of pheromones and little dances. Love it. Well, what we would call dances. I'm sure they would not think of them as dances. They would probably call it. (laughs) They would probably call it. (laughs) Along with everything else. (laughs) It's a simple language, but effective. (laughs) So, yeah, they're able to communicate pretty interesting ideas. Like uh, the location of resources. Uh, A bee comes back and says, hey, I found some pretty cool flowers. I'm going to be able to communicate to you in which direction and how far away it is. Oh, so direction and distance. Yes. Okay. Okay. How much of this is charades? (laughs) First word. (laughs) Rhymes with B. (laughs) (laughs) Is it B? (laughs) Yeah, you got it. It was B. Uh, the next point I'm giving for ingenuity is their kind of the system for splitting off and making new colonies. So this also lets me kind of describe their reprodu- their reproduction cycle. So you have a colony with a with a queen, drones and workers, right? Sure. Let's say the colony gets to a point where it's gotten too big, or it's just gotten to the time of season where it's where this just naturally happens, where they split off and make a new colony. So what they'll do is the queen will start laying eggs for other queens. Oh. So normally most bees are, their their eggs are laid in the honeycomb, the, hexa, the hexagonal honeycombs. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but for queens, they have a special encasing. It's actually a, it's its own structure on top of the honeycomb. Oh, yeah, a, a throne. <laughs> yeah. So this this and a combination of pheromones, I assume, from the queen tells the nurse workers to feed that egg or what will eventually be a larva more what's called royal jelly royal jelly yes incredible (laughs) so all bees are fed a little bit of royal jelly but for those that are destined to become queen bees that's they're given a lot oh and that's what causes the transformation into a, a queen bee is this different from honey royal jelly is different from honey yes it is is it delicious uh can i go get some at the store you can actually spread it on my toast. It's not so. It is sold as a health product, and for our listeners, I did that with air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't actually any proof that it provides any health benefits. Okay, and actually, some folks are very, very allergic to it. Oh, so well, let's be careful with <laughs> use that. At your own risk. So, what is it like a snack? What do you do with it? It's just like a health product. I mean, yeah, you can eat it, sure, but it's come so, on, try it. So here's the thing. The, one is only able to acquire royal jelly from these cells that are growing queen bees. Oh, okay. Sure. Cause, and it's the only way to that it makes sense. Because, yes, it's the royal jelly is produced for every other bee. But the problem is is the bee that is producing the royal jelly is feeding it directly to the larva. Oh, okay. There's no, yeah, like, yeah, reservoir yeah. that they keep it in. But with queen bees... They are in a reservoir of the royal jelly. Oh. Yes. Very nice. Yes. Very nice. So, as you can imagine, not very much is produced there. Yeah. Probably hard <laughs> to get your hands on, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Probably not worth it. <laughs> no. Especially since it's not proven to actually do anything. Yeah. If it doesn't do anything <laughs> and it's not delicious, why bother? We can just get the honey. It's awesome and you don't have to do anything. So, anyway. So, yeah. You've got you've got more queen bees now. And what will happen is when these uh, when these queen bees hatch... They will fight to the death. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, Until there's okay. one left. Game of Thrones season eight. Let's go. <laughs> queen or, versus queen. Or what will happen is if one hatches first, it will seek out and kill the other ones while they're still developing. That's smart. Honestly. Yeah. Like, don't don't even give them the time of day. Yep. Yep. So what you have then is one queen bee that is left in addition to the original. So the new queen will fly off with a bunch of drones. They will mate. She will only have to mate during this period ever. Because at this point, she will be storing genetic material within her body. Oh. Which she will use to fertilize all of the eggs she will ever lay going forward. Really? Yes. Huh. Interesting. So not only are the drones only used for mating, but they're only used for mating in a very specific time period. And then they're just there for show. (laughs) (laughs) And then they're just there to look cute. Yep. So now the new colony is in progress. Uh, you know, it'll start building its own hive with honeycomb. The queen lays eggs in those little hexagonal cells. Sure. It will start to grow into a larva. And then when it starts to be ready to be a pupa, nurse workers will cover the cell with wax. And then once that pupa develops into an adult bee, the adult bee will chew its way out of the cell. Okay. Okay. And there you have it. That's there the full go. life cycle. So that, that's where the bees' wax comes into play. Yeah, so the, the comb itself is made of wax, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the worker bees, they uh, they produce wax scales on their thorax, I believe. Okay. Um, so they'll produce the wax on themselves and they'll use that to make those structures. Have you ever seen a video of people scraping like wax off of a beehive? Yes. And like the honey spilling out? Yep. 
Oh, it's so, so good. So they have to do that because they, they also use a cap to seal honey, too. Oh, gosh. It's so good to watch. Yep. It's so satisfying. <laughs> Just a good, clean swipe. But if you look at a full like comb like that, you can kind of identify, okay, so this part is all honey. This part is all developing bees. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because you only want the honey. You don't want like... Baby bees. <laughs> Babies. Oh. <laughs> uh, so my next point for ingenuity, their hives are meant to be permanent. It's it's not like other species of bees and wasps where they're kind of meant to be temporary. So they're not like hopping from hive to hive. Yeah. They just will hunker down in one hive. As long as they can. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Okay. They're homebodies. Yeah. So, yeah, 10 out of 10 ingenuity. I can definitely see that now. That is surprisingly complex of a lifestyle for a, a very small bug. It is. It is. A little bug <laughs> that you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't look at it and think, oh, boy, there's a whole bunch of brains stuffed in that little <laughs> tiny little noggin. But, boy, Which sure you, you got to wonder how much of it is individual thought and how much of it is instinct. But I think it's still impressive. Regardless. That is That is something that consistently blows my mind about bugs. There are so many species of insects that, on their own, are dumb. They're sure. com- complete idiots by themselves. They can't figure anything out. But when you get them together in a large enough swarm, they can pull off these just insane feats. They are architects and strategists, and they have like a whole organized society where all of them have their different Mm -hmm. roles and tasks and jobs that they have to do. They have like an economy and stuff like internally amongst themselves. But like it's when they're in a big group and all working together that their intelligence really shines through. But just on their own, they're not that smart. Sure. So very, very interesting. It it always just thrills me how smart bugs can be. I'm personally impressed by the presence of geometry in nature. Yeah, because they pretty consistently churn out these like perfect hexagons, right? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I can't even draw a perfect hexagon. (laughs) So our last category, aesthetics, pretty straightforward. I'll give an eight out of ten. That's yeah, that's good. That's good. It's a cute guy. Yeah. Uh my first point is fuzzy butts. Yes. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Bee butts are my favorite. <laughs> I love little bumblebee butts when they got the booty sticking out of the flower. It's my favorite. They're cute. Um I, I always like seeing them when they're pollen dusted like because they have little hairs all over the body and uh, we can see little flecks of pollen just it's sitting so cute. <laughs> yeah that that was what i liked about the bats mm. too like the the fruit bat right when their fur is covered in just little flower dust yeah it's really charming and of course you know the bees they have the uh, alternating black and white stripes on their abdomen it's a good look yeah uh, i've mentioned before that i do like the yellow and black color yeah. combo here's something i didn't know the bees you're probably thinking of have two compound eyes and they're very separated from each other. Yep. The drone bees, their eyes actually connect in the middle. Like on top of the head? Yes. Yes. Huh. So they, they look a little different. So if you ever get to see a whole colony of bees, sure. <laughs> you can tell them apart because the queen bee is the biggest, of course. She has a very elongated abdomen and because she has developed ovaries, whereas the other female worker bees have ovaries, but they are not developed. They're practically they're practically sterile and also the queen bee lives in the hive right you're not going to see the queen bee flying around or anything unless it's a queen looking to start a new colony sure right okay or mating too Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah and then the drones are the next biggest in addition to the the eyes i just mentioned kind of sets them apart and then you have the worker bees that i think most of us are familiar with yeah 
Um, but even all that in mind, it can be a little difficult to tell them apart. A lot of the times when you see a picture of someone's beehive that they just have, that they set up on their farm or what have you, uh, you'll see that they put a little dot of paint on the back of the queen to make it really easy to see her. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You can just deck her out just a little bit. Give her a little decoration. <laughs> Give her a little makeover. <laughs> yep. Uh, they should make little tiny, tiny little crowns oh. for queen bees. That's my new business venture. We're going to throw those up in our merch store that we don't have. <laughs> Crowns for queen bees. <laughs> so a uh, little bit of miscellaneous info. Surprising fact, on the IUCN red list, they're listed as data deficient. What? But yeah. there's so many of them. They're very important too. So you would think we would have that data, but we don't. Why not? I don't know. I couldn't find a straight answer for that. Huh. That's interesting. Well, I've been hearing a lot about how bees are doing. Yes, and, and I've heard negative. it's I've heard it's not good. <laughs> yeah, and that's because they're threatened by disease, pesticides, and loss of habitat. Sure. So the big one right now is pesticides, mm-hmm. but also change, changing climate to some extent, at least. Yeah. And the reason that's important is because of their economic impact. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's huge. So bees pollinate more than thirty percent of the food that we eat. So that's a third. That's very much of it. It is. It's estimated that the that in the U.S. they pollinate up to fifteen billion dollars worth of crops every year. Goodness. Yeah. We rely a lot on bees. We sure do. They produce honey, pollen, wax, royal jelly, like I mentioned before, and something called propolis. I've never or heard propolis. of it. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Of- I hadn't either. I cannot say this. Never heard of it in my life. Yes, and I hadn't I hadn't either before this. It's basically bee glue. Hmm. Yeah. So this is something they produce to fix things, I guess, in the hive. Sure. A little adhesive. Yeah. Huh. yeah. I uh I really enjoy all of the Burt's bees uh beeswax mm-hmm. products. I like I like a lot of stuff made with beeswax. Yep. I've yep. had a lot of really good ones. So the the products they make directly, you know, those are important, but in terms of dollars, uh their their use as pollinators, I think, outweigh everything else. Right, right, right. Um because I, I'd read somewhere that we actually get the majority of our honey from outside the country. Oh. Yeah. That makes sense. We uh thankfully in our area in Jacksonville, Florida, there is a wealth of local beekeepers. Yeah. So yeah. there is no shortage of local beekeepers with their own honey beehives mm-hmm. that you can get amazing honey from. Sure. Actually there's a local business called Stubbies yeah. that we've gotten some really good like flavored honey from. They usually like will infuse some sort of mm-hmm. like fruit or flavoring in with them. And boy, it is so good. We bought some from them in St. Augustine and then I bought some more up here in Jacksonville. So if, you know, if you can, if you can find a honeybee keeper or a locally owned and operated, you know, bee honey company, definitely buy from them. Because, um, you know, keeping honeybee hives is really important right now. And if it interests you, there's a huge honeybee hobbyist group out there uh, that like to keep their own bees. Probably not enough to sell any kind of product, but maybe you'll you'll have a little bit here and there for yourself. But it's nice to just keep bees around. When we bought our house, I specifically asked if the homeowners association had any regulation on bees, and the seller looked at me like I had just spouted bees out of my mouth. <laughs> looked at me like I just opened my mouth and a swarm of bees had flown directly out of my mouth and did not give me an answer on the bees. 
But the packet doesn't say I can't have these. That's okay. We'll buzz him back. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> now I have to delete this episode, too. <laughs> so that's uh, that's what I have on the Western Honeybee. Thank you again to our friend Julie Gilson. Yeah. Oh, we uh, we can't forget their uh, pop culture permeance. There are a lot of um, honeybee references in pop culture, our favorite of which being the steam-powered giraffe song, Honeybee. Oh, it's so good. It's amazing. This was, uh, Christian and I got really, really into the steampunk band Steam Power Giraffe back in 2014. Yeah, that's 2014, about right, we yeah. got it really into them. And they have an, a really beautiful song called Honey Bee that they gave us permission to play a clip of in this episode. So enjoy <laughs> this clip of the song Honey Bee by Steam Power Giraffe. Honey So that was the song Honey Bee by Steampowered Giraffe. If you want to hear more from them, you can visit them at steampoweredgiraffe.com and check out their music. I also really like the song uh, Bees on the album Kids Trap. And yep. it's a little trap song about bees. And I love it. And my son loves it. And we sing it all the time. They sure do. <laughs> Christian loves it. <laughs> Thank you, honey. You did a great job. Thanks. You did great as well. Thank you so much. I would also like to thank all of our listeners who have been listening to the show and recommending it. We've been seeing a lot of growth over the last few weeks and we're really excited about it. So thank you so much for being a part of our growth and just uh, supporting this humble little podcast project. We've been having a great time with it. We've been having an amazing time and it's going it's going very, very well for us. So um, if you like what you've heard today, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search the title of the show and you'll find us. If you have an animal species that you want to hear us review, shoot it to us at thezooofus at gmail.com. A transcript of this episode will be made available at justthezooofus.home.blog. And my final note, I would like to thank Louis Zong for the use of his song Adventuring from his album, B-Sides. <laughs> the album artwork is a bee, by the way. It is a bee. And also that is B-Sides, B-E-E, like yes, the animal, the bee. So that it really just all wraps back around to it. We did it? it. We finally tied it in. Podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> 15, it's been a great 15 episodes. So <laughs> just thanks. kidding. Thanks, you all. All right. Well, that's all we've got for this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, y'all. And Christian, you're the honey best. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's my sign off for this week. Very good. All right. Bye. Bye. What ho, fancy friends, and welcome to the adventures of me, Jeffrey Moncler, and my faithful winged feathered steed, Monsieur Simon. Join us as we traverse the realms of existence, discover ourselves and others, and have 
Adventure! Ah! The Gigantic Adventures of Jeff and Simon is a family-friendly adventure on the family-friendly Podicon Go Network.